Hello. Standing up here today because my wife told me that if I drop her computer, there will be a price to pay. So she was not she was not having that happening. So I got to use the uh, the grand podium of ultimate uh, divine authority today. That's what I'm calling this podium. You know, my father he doesn't use this podium, but I do. <laughs> but I do. My voice doesn't carry as far as his, that's why. No, but uh, anyway, I have um, compiled this packet. And I want to talk about the packet, what it is, and what the idea here is. I want to just see first by a show of hands, who was at the last speech I gave a couple months ago? If you want to raise your hand nice and high. Okay, a decent percentage, but not everybody. My father covered the gist of the point of this. If you haven't noticed, we live in a time where less and less people are convinced that God exists. In addition, they're less and less convinced that Jesus uh, was the Son of God. You know, people my age especially, a generation called the Millennials, they have, they are, I believe, the least convinced generation in American history when it comes to faith in God and faith in Jesus. So what are we going to do? What's our church going to do to adapt to this? If we're only going to reach out to open people, or if we're only going to reach out to people who already have faith, then we're excluding an increasingly large percentage of people who may be open, but they're just skeptical. Oftentimes we mistake skepticism for unopenness. And I contend that no. If someone asks, why should I believe that a man rose from the dead? That's a fair question. Honestly, why, why should I believe that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, actually rose from the dead? And that's why I should have faith today. Why should I believe that? Uh, my parents told me that. And their parents told them that. And their parents told them that. So you should believe it too. No skeptic is going to be convinced by that. You ever tried that one? And then what do we say? We realize this is an outrageous way to try to reach out to somebody, so we may apply a quick-fix solution, trying to, you know, discredit science. That's always a good one. What do we do? Some really funny things. We, we do funny things when we don't know how to reach out to skeptics. Why do I say this? It's because I've done all these funny things. I lived in Norway for seven years. In the first couple weeks, all I did was say funny things to atheists and agnostic Norwegians. So many of them just a gigantic percentage of Norwegians, I think we mentioned it in this church at least once a year, since we um, support those churches financially. So many of them, a huge percentage, just don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus. So I was out there on the street trying to talk to people having just no idea what to say. What I, what I did, what, what helped me, was to think, okay, how am I going to reach out to these people? How am I going to be able to convince them as a church in Norway that, would became, that became our focus. So here, my father sent an email to all the small group leaders uh, with this packet, and the small group leaders were supposed to send forward the email to the people in their small group, and then you were supposed to get this packet. Kevin Batchelor's shaking his head. His head. I have not seen this. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. The idea is to save paper. That's another thing my generation is really you know, into is like saving the environment and stuff. So in order to save paper and save the church's money, I decided to not print uh, 100 copies of this 13-page paper. Everyone will eventually be able to get it, 
Now, what I'm going to show you right now, you'll see this here, how to convince skeptics. That's not on your paper if you have it with you. That's because these, I'm going to scroll down now. These are the notes from my first speech from a few months ago. These are the notes. And now I've included those as a, as a foreword of sorts. It contains an argumentation on why we need to be very serious about increasing our knowledge of history and science and the Bible to be able to reach out to skeptics and convince them. Because think about what the apostles did. What did the apostles do? I have it right here. We're just going to skip through this very quickly. I call it the apostles' strategy. Everyone see here? Apostle strategy. What were, what were they doing in the book of Acts all the time? They were arguing persuasively that Jesus is the Christ. What do they do? Did they say, you want to come to my church? Here's an invitation. No. They didn't say that. At least it's not written down. They might have said that sometime. But Luke didn't see fit to write any of those questions down when they were talking to Jews or Gentiles. Instead, what we read in the book of Acts is that the apostles were very... Uh, focused on explaining that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies from the Old Testament, which a lot of people knew about, especially the Jews. I'm not sure how many Gentiles knew. Another, that's another question. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus performed miracles, proving that he's the Son of God, and that he rose from the dead. These three ingredients prove that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore God exists. And therefore, you should repent and be baptized. Remember Acts 2? That's the response. But even that speech in Acts 2, it was Jesus, he did, he did miracles, wonders, and signs, which you all know about. Remember that speech? Right. He fulfilled the prophecies. He came from David. And then he proved it all in the end by raising from the dead. Those three things in so many speeches in the book of Acts. And that is the exact strategy that I believe we ought to employ today. That's going to be the most convincing for skeptics. It's not a gimmick. It's not a made-up concept. It's not Joseph Nealon's philosophy on how to reach out to people, revolutionizing everything and writing my own Bible. No, it's just, what, are, what did the apostles do to their, to their skeptics? With their skeptics, how did they argue? Look at Acts 17. When Paul was, uh, was visiting the Aeropagus in Athens, they were skeptics. And yet he still remained. He stayed on message for these three points. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, he performed miracles, and he raised from the dead. Now, I have here some, uh, once again, in the introduction, which we're going to breeze through because I talked about it um, a while ago, a couple months ago. These are what, this is your part and what you can do. And we can talk more about this. I'm thinking that maybe uh, next time we could have a little Q&A. Um, I've been trying to reach out for, to skeptics for seven years with varying results. Uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to have learned from my mistakes and have learned many things. So I would just love to share that knowledge, the experience that I've had. I don't look at myself as some sort of expert. It's just this is something I've been trying for a long time. And I think that, I think that what I've gone through is, is something that can be a resource to the church here. And there you go. I, I, just, I don't want to sound like, oh, I'm up here. I'm so good. No, no. No, I've failed so many times. That's how I've learned. And now you don't, get to, you don't have to fail as much as I did. See? See? I'm taking away all the failure that you would have to go through by yourself if you're going to do this by yourself. By the way, this isn't something that I've come up with by myself. It's a collaboration. Many Christians from Scandinavia, even uh, a guy named J Douglas Jacoby, who some of you have heard about, uh, has helped us with this, helped us compile these Bible studies. 
But anyway, do your homework, which I actually have done most of it for you by compiling this. Now you don't have to do as much homework, which it says there. So that's, that's nice. Next, make a skeptic curious about Jesus. When you reach out to a skeptic, when you meet a skeptic at the gym, Dad, 60-year-old yeah. uh, skeptic lady yeah. at the gym, get the conversation, steer it toward Jesus. Your church is uninteresting to skeptics. They're not interested in your church. If they are, then they are a religious person, and they're not skeptical. Okay? Obviously, we have different ways of reaching out to non-skeptics. That's something our church has actually been great at for decades. So I, I, don't, I have nothing to say about that. I think we all know how to do that. But skeptics, steer the conversation toward Jesus. Do you believe that it's possible to show historically, to argue historically, that Jesus rose from the dead? I, I contend yes. It is possible to argue that Jesus rose from the dead historically. Yes, it is. That will get your skeptic listening. Whoa, no one's ever said that before. They just said you have to believe. You have to go pray and ask God, God, please give me faith, and maybe God will give you faith. No, 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 no. You can do, your, you can do some research and you can find out. Build credibility. What do I mean by that? A lot of us make the mistake of opposing science. This is the big theme that I talked about last time. When we say things like, the Big Bang Theory is not in the Bible, so it can't have been the way God created the earth. When we say that, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. The Big Bang Theory is a scientific fact. Might as well be called the Big Bang Fact. Right? But if you read the, the creation story, it claims there was a beginning of time and a beginning of space. The Big Bang Theory says the exact same thing. There was a beginning of time, there was a beginning of space. The way God created the earth, the Bible's not a science book. The Bible's not going to explain the quark gluon plasma from the beginning of the, the first few fractions of a second of uh, the Big Bang. The Bible's not going to explain that to its Hebrew audience that it was written for so long ago. It's going to say God created the heavens and the earth. Science con confirms that there was a beginning. This is just an example, the way science is your friend. Science is your friend. Darwin's theory of evolution. Why didn't God create it that way? Maybe he did. The Bible explains that there was a process where less complex organisms eventually were replaced, or rather, what was added to the less complex organisms were more complex organisms, until eventually we ended up with man. How is that not an evolution? It is. We can talk about this after, <laughs> if anyone's offended. But the point is, don't, don't try to put, the Bible, put God in a box. By saying, I have a rigid interpretation of Genesis 1, and I'm not willing to change it because my mom told me that's what I'm supposed to believe in, the six-day interpretation. No, we need to interpret soundly. Proven science is our friend. God created science. Build credibility. Show your skeptic you believe in science, right? Like the skinny guy from Nacho Libre. You believe in science, okay? I wrote all, so I wrote all this here. Everyone's going to get this email, by the way. That all these notes... Here it is. You can read it on your own time. Hebrew medicine is another one I have to mention. How did the Hebrews have soap? No one else had soap. How did they have soap? How did they know how to practice hygiene? Hygiene just was not something anyone understood in that time, etc., etc. Uh, historians, in the back here I have about nine different historical excerpts from non-Christian historians who wrote about the Christians and Jesus. It's pretty great. It's not just the Bible who wrote. Or it's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Their accounts we have. We have other people also, Romans, Greeks, and so on. What we're going to focus on today 
is argue persuasively that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I only alluded to these, the four Jesus studies that we in Norway wrote by necessity. We compiled, we wrote and compiled these studies by necessity. Notice what they're called. The prophecies, Jesus claims about himself, Jesus' miracles, and the death and resurrection. The same things that the apostles talked about when they were reaching out to people. So let's do the same thing. We're going to go through these today. I think we're going to be able to knock out the first two. I got 35 minutes. I think that'll be ample time. Also, I, I basically wrote down everything that you would need to, to execute this study with a skeptic. I translated it from Norwegian. It took a long time. <laughs> it took a really long time, but it was, uh, it's absolutely worth it. I'm, I'm, I'm just... Uh, I'm excited about us trying this out on a bunch of skeptical people, probably making a ton of mistakes and then eventually getting better, and then we'll start baptizing some of them. How does that sound? It's going to be an exciting time. Yeah, let's clap for that. Let's clap for that. This is a new time. You know, the teens sitting in the front row, so encouraging that you actually believe in God. None of your friends believe in God, do they? Nope. Do you hear that? None of their friends believe in God. Okay, how are they going to make it? That's another thing. I want to talk to the parents also. Parents with smaller children, how are they going to end up being faithful when they start asking you hard questions? Are you going to have answers? Why should I believe in the resurrection? Are you going to have answers for your kids? Parents of these kids already did a fantastic job, but the job's not over. They, they need tools to get through high school, to get through college. Their professors, their teachers, their friends, everyone they know. They're going to make fun of them for believing in this. It's ridiculous. How could you believe in this? I maintain we have ample reason to believe in this. We just need to be able to communicate it and learn it ourselves. All right? That's also a part of this. I remember I was thinking I got to tell the parents. A couple parents came up to me. My my daughter's learning about uh, the Big Bang Theory. What should I tell her? Tell her it's true in science and that science is awesome. I'm sorry if you're here, woman who came up to me. You're, you're super cool. It was pretty adorable and a lot of fun to have that conversation. <laughs> Anyways, so and then, of course, study first principles. But that's what you do after you've done the Jesus studies. Have you ever studied first principles of somebody who uh, doesn't believe in God? And then in the end, you're like, so do you want to become a Christian? No, but I learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, that was really fun. I I enjoyed that. I believe your church is the right church if Christianity were true, which it isn't. Okay, has that ever happened? First principles will rarely convince a skeptic. On one out of a hundred times, but it's possible, but we're not using all the tools that God has given us to help the skeptics. We're not using all the tools if we're only doing first principles. That's why we added these tools. And I bet there's more out there. Last thing I want to say... Before we dive into the prophecies about Jesus, I'm going to go up here, is that you could go deeper in all these themes. This is just an overview. This is to crack the surface. This is to get the skeptic thinking. This might be enough to convince the skeptic, but if anything, it's going to build an immense curiosity. There actually is evidence. So what I've written down here is enough that we can really digest and be able to communicate you know, there's more ways to dig in. Douglas Jacoby, once again, has written a number of books that are available to us. Uh, other uh, Christian apologists have written books uh, about the 
the way we can use science, the way that we can use history to be able to argue persuasively that Jesus is the Christ. This isn't the only resource you have. This is more of a, uh, of a, of a summary compilation. Okay? So this isn't some sort of magic um, collection of studies that will work every single time. Another thing is that if a person is unopened and if a person is unwilling to believe, they simply will not believe. Didn't Jesus say that if, if they didn't believe in Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe it even, even if a person is risen from the dead? He said something like that. You know, it's just about, you know, if someone's made up their mind, if someone's hard-hearted, if someone's unopened and unwilling to believe, nothing is going to convince them. So don't go home, beat yourself up, you try to convince a skeptic, and they're unconvinced. That's been the case most of the time, in my experience. But sometimes, they have been convinced. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. If we can save just one person with this, isn't it worth it? I believe so. So, the first study uh, that I recommend uh, going through with a, with a skeptic is called The Prophecies About Jesus. Now, you don't have to do this one first. You could do any of them first if you want. You could skip these. You could, you could mix the order, whatever. It's not any magical order. But I typically begin with this one. So, <clears throat> we all know what the prophecies were, right? I assume that. In the Old Testament, God's people... Uh, God's prophets wrote down, and so they spoke and, and, and wrote down God's words. And most of the prophets spoke God's word to the recipients of their time as lessons to them. However, sometimes they spoke about things that would occur in the future, namely the coming of a Messiah figure to the earth. Does anyone remember any prophecies about Jesus specifically? Let's, let's get a little hand raising. Who remembers one? Let's hear it. What does it say? I don't know what it says. I, I haven't memorized the Bible. I don't know. <laughs> Hosea 53. What does that say, Tom? Oh, was that Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53. Exactly. That's actually on my list here. Did you look at that? Did you look at that? Did you cheat? All right. There it is. There it is. Any others? I mean to say, like, what, what is it written in the Bible that the Messiah would do or come from or experience? Yes? He would come from the line of David. Great. Any others? Just, hit, just rattle off a couple. Kevin Bachelor. Yeah, the builders rejected the stone, which has become the capstone. That's right. He'd be rejected. Okay. Any others? His birth, where or when? Where? Bethlehem. That's correct. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. That's a good one. That's a good one. Good job, mom. That's my mom. Let's hear like two more. Let's hear like two more. Two more. Or else I'm going to have to just go on. Five, four. Okay, we have a lot to learn about the prophecies. This is good. This is good. We're learning that we don't know a whole lot about this or we're unwilling to speak in a, in a public forum. That's fine, too. And there could be a number of reasons. Anyway, the, it's really incredible how God saw fit to have prophets prophesy about his son before he came. I believe that's partially because we benefit from this by being able to point to it. Now, if you're a skeptic, What's the first thing you say about the prophecies 
that makes you unconvinced. The first thing you're going to say is, well, how do we know they were written before Christ came? How do we know that? Because anyone could, could write something about all that Jesus did afterward, claim that it was from before Jesus lived, and then say, look, a prophecy. Jesus is clearly God's son. Well, until the 40s, that was a really sound argument. I go through that here. Let me just move down a little. Where are we at? I wrote it down here somewhere. Anyway, in the 40s, archaeologists excavated copies of almost every Old Testament book, except for Esther, called the Dead Sea Scrolls, carbon dated to as early as 100 years before Christ. 100 years before Christ. Anyone who can read that old Hebrew language will be able to see specific sentences about what the Christ would go through, about where the Christ would be born, and what would happen to the Christ, and so forth. Proving that the prophecies were written before Jesus lived. Now that is awesome. Before the 40s, you couldn't really say anything about that to a skeptic. You would have to say, I'm sorry, you just, you're just going to have to believe me. The prophecies were written before Jesus came. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We're just going to read a small excerpt. As you can see here, I'm choosing to focus our study on the prophecies on Psalm 22, 1-19. to You don't necessarily have to write this down because you're going to be able to see it in the notes here. To Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. These are the longest, richest prophetic texts about Jesus. They're not the only ones, however. But, uh uh-oh, one second. Uh, Bible, I have my phone. I'm sorry, thank you for that. I have my phone, it's going to take too long to get into it. Let's just read, you, what you would do with, the, with your friend, let's call him uh, Ben Skeptic. With your friend Ben Skeptic, you would go through each of the scriptures here, you know, you'd make sure you would prepare yourself by reading this text, and then you would read these prophecies about Jesus. Now, most skeptics know a thing or two about Jesus. However, if they don't, then all you have to do is read the crucifixion account afterward. Okay. I'm sorry. This is becoming really technical. I mean, I I just wrote down everything here. I figure we can just talk about how we would go about this. I'll give you an example. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Now, this is, of course, one of the texts that was dug up in in the archaeological find, the Dead Sea Scrolls, 19, I believe, 47. There it is. There it is. Everyone can follow here. There it is. Oh. Give that a read when we're not reading the Bible. Don't read that now. We're going to read the Bible. Okay? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, verse 1. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in death. Nice, Mom. Nice, Mom. That's the one you referred to. He was with the rich in death, rich man's tomb. Okay? Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the, Lord will, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life, resurrection, and be satisfied. The resurrection was foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came. Interesting. See the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And what you'd want to do is point out, because we all have this knowledge, we all know the story of Jesus, how many of these verses just jump out and scream, Jesus, 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 absolutely. So many things I would ask, who notices something? But, you know, that could take time. It's just so obvious. He was pierced. He was pierced? That's pretty specific. I like that one. He was buried with the rich. He was silent before his accusers. Rejected, despised, afflicted. And, of course, we also have in here the spiritual implication of the death of the Messiah and what that would mean for us. So here we have some physical prophecies, we have some spiritual prophecies, okay? This is proven to be written before Christ. It is a scientific fact. Now that is an ingredient. That's something that's going to make the skeptic think, huh? Then the next question is, did Jesus actually do these things? Of course, that is the next question. Before we talk more about that, I just want to read quickly from Psalm 22, another prophecy that's mentioned here in the study. There's so many prophecies that we could read. You know, we don't want to take five hours with whoever we're sitting down with. People usually don't have that much time, so we take sort of the meat. These two. Psalm 22, 1 to 19. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I think one of the most interesting verses in the entire Bible is in Psalm 22. David is talking about It's sort of a a very interesting psalm. David's talking about his own predicament. However, there are things in here that do not apply to his predicament. For example, verse 16. We'll get there in a second. David, when we know the story of Jesus, it's very simple for the Christian to look at Psalm 22 and say, this is clearly a prophecy about Jesus while it's describing David's own predicament to an extent. It's easy to see that for us because we know the story of Jesus. But this is also proven to be written before Christ lived. What does it say here in verse 16? Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, crucifixion, obviously that sounds a lot like crucifixion. Crucifixion was not invented when David wrote this a thousand years before Christ. 
It wasn't even invented. Where would David had gotten the idea? They pierced my hands and my feet. That wasn't a typical situation for someone to be in. Obviously, this is a prophecy about Jesus. And you can read the entire thing. That's not the only thing that becomes obvious. Of course, we have the very first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus says on the cross. And other, other things. We're not going to talk about too many of them. But this exact verse referring to what's clearly a crucifixion of sorts is particularly interesting. This makes the skeptics say, hmm, interesting. It is a historical fact that Jesus was crucified. Romans wrote it down. I mean, the most skeptical person who's even the least bit serious would, would say that, yes, Jesus definitely existed and he was definitely given the capital punishment. A skeptic would have to yield that because there are multiple historical sources outside of the Bible that confirm it. And we have proof that this was written before Christ. It's just, for us, maybe this is really obvious, but to the skeptic, it's like, I've never heard of this before. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. And then the skeptic might say something like, well, a lot of these things, it seems, Jesus could control. You could easily make someone hate you. You know, you could easily get yourself crucified. Uh, you um, You could somehow make yourself disfigured, as Jesus was under the the punishment that he went through, the, the, the whipping and the, and the crucifixion. <clears throat> these things you could sort, Jesus could have decided, I want to fulfill all of these prophecies and be the Messiah figure that's prophesied about in the Bible. That would be a reasonable claim by a skeptic. I would answer with, what about the things, the prophecies that Jesus had absolutely no control over? Here's another fun one, by the way, it just came to me, Psalm 22. Where does it say they divide their, my clothes amongst themselves? Verse 18, they divide my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. What did the Romans do while Jesus was being crucified? And what did the Romans know about this text? The Romans knew nothing about this text. And what did the Romans do when Jesus was being crucified? They did exactly this. Now, how would Jesus have controlled that hanging on the cross? Hey, hey, guys, you're going to want to, like, take my clothes and divide them amongst yourselves. Oh, I can't divide them amongst yourselves. Dude, you should get some dice. Castle. Roll dice for him. Mm. I need to fulfill every prophecy. Oh, this is so painful. I mean, come on. What crazy... First of all, another thing. What crazy person would decide to fulfill these prophecies? <laughs> if it were a prophecy about being extremely rich and popular, I would want to fulfill all of those. Right? And having a ton of power. But no, it's all about how terrible the Messiah's life was going to be. We know that a Jesus existed. We know he suffered. We know he was rejected. We know that Christians exist. Read all the, the, the we're not going to go through them, but read all of the, the historical excerpts in the back of the, the packet. It's incredible what they wrote about the Christians and what they wrote about Jesus. But anyways, uh, one second, just need to get this back up and going here. I also wrote down a list of prophecies that Jesus would have no control over, as you can see here at the bottom. Some prophecies which Jesus had no control over. Descendant of Abraham and Isaac, descendant of Jacob, descendant of Judah, descendant of Jesse, and descendant of David. Okay, that's a pretty intense family tree line. And the Jews were extremely serious about questions involving ancestry. They recorded all that stuff. You ever read some of the Old Testament stuff and just you want to read the whole Bible in a year and you get to those like five chapters that are just genealogies and you're like trying to have your quiet time. You're like, God, thank you for Benesh, son of Hakal, and for Sheomesh, son of 
Gesendorf. <laughs> Thank you for the fact that the Jews wrote down the name of every person who lived. You don't really know what to pray for during those read the Bible in a year. Skip a bit, brother. But then I didn't read the Bible in a year. Oh, I have to read this. I have, felt, I have no spiritual nourishment from this, but I'm going to read it anyway. Okay, that was... I'm sorry, I digress. Virgin birth, born in Bethlehem, however, he would come from Galilee. You know, you read about the story of Jesus' upbringing, you get that happening also. How is that going to happen? He would be given gifts upon his birth. Uh, He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be betrayed by a friend. And, of course, there was the, um, uh, they divide my garments amongst themselves. These are just some. I just wrote some here, some prophecies which Jesus had no control over. You do your homework, you, you could easily find a lot more. So anyway, you're going to want to... Yeah, there we go. Fulfillment of the prophecies, John 19, 17 to 42. Now, obviously, there are a lot more places in the New Testament where Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, many specific ones. In fact, the gospel writers often wrote, he spoke this and fulfilled this prophecy, and then writes down the prophecy. But you don't want to overwhelm your audience. You don't want to, once again, sit down for five hours. This will cover the gist This verse here will cover the gist of the prophetic fulfillment. Okay? Now I want to take a step back and talk about motivation. You know, a a skeptic could easily ask, well, why why wouldn't we just then think that the gospel writers um, just wrote that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and then, um, you know, I guess they could get famous? Or something? Why would they do that? Is my question. And this is one question that convinces me. I am faithful today because I'm convinced that Jesus actually fulfilled the prophecies, that he actually did miracles, and that he actually rose from the dead. dead. It's not because of my parents. My parents saw me through my childhood, and that was extremely helpful. Now I'm an adult, and I think for myself. I'm faithful today in part because of their instruction, but in part because I'm convinced by the historicity of these events that they actually took place. And one thing that drives me is why would they have written that? There was nothing to be gained, nothing to be gained from following Jesus. It was obvious throughout Jesus' entire ministry. If you follow me, you're going to have to give all your money away. Your parents are going to hate you. Your family's going to hate you. You'll be ostracized from society. There is, and by the way, this isn't even a political movement. You know, some people would sacrifice a lot for a for an ideology, a, a political movement. We want to see a new government. We want to see change uh, occur politically, so that my race of people perhaps will have it better. There is nothing of the sort, nothing in Jesus' message that had that gave the gospel writers anything to gain from writing about Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Yet they were unwilling, even when the seriousness of persecution took place, they were unwilling to reverse themselves, that they'd witnessed these events. That's something that convinces me. We also know that we had Christians, lots of Christians, convinced 40 days after, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter gave a speech in Acts 2. This is all written down. Everything I'm saying is written down in the, in the packet here. I'm only emphasizing things I think are of utmost importance. Peter got in front of everybody in Acts 2 and said, Jesus did miracles as you know. Jesus rose from the dead as you know. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies as you know. 
What was the response? They were cut to the heart. Did it say they were sitting there in shock and disbelief? No, they were cut to the heart. And thousands were converted that day. Because they said, yeah, we know about all these things. We've either heard about the miracles and the prophecies being fulfilled in the resurrection, or we saw it with our own eyes. So now I'm willing to say, okay, what should I do? Brothers, what do I do now? Now that I know the spiritual implication of the events that I've heard about and seen, what do I do now? Repent and be baptized. And then they gave away all their money. Remember that right after? They gave all their money away and shared it. There was nothing to be gained, except, of course, you had a family. But that was nice only for a little while until the Jewish authorities came knocking, having a problem with what they were talking about. And then Emperor Nero came knocking, having a problem with what they were doing. And then it was just a terrible time of persecution. Yet the Christians wouldn't go away. You can read. All right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to the back here. We only need about 10 minutes to talk about the next study anyway. What was it here? Cornelius Tacitus, 55 to 120 AD, Roman historian, wrote about the persecution of the Christians and that they weren't willing to reverse themselves. You can read it there. Also, Pliny the Younger and his audience, Emperor Tra- Trajan, I guess is how we're going to pronounce it. You'll see here that the Christians didn't reverse themselves. It was like, be executed or say Jesus wasn't real. And say Jesus isn't God. Or die. And they're like, I'll die. He's real. It's true. I'm sorry, I've either seen it with my own eyes or I heard about it. Why would people be willing to suffer like that if it were all fabricated? That's one, th- that's one thing that gives me a lot of faith today. This is an interesting study. Jesus' claims about himself. It's that, uh, I think, was it C.S. Lewis who came up with the idea that Jesus was either a legend, liar, lunatic, or he was Lord? Was that C.S. Lewis? I think it was too. But someone along the line came up with that. That's sort of what this is. The point of this study, you could even start with this one. The point of this study is that a lot of skeptics will say, well, you know, Jesus... Why should I believe in Jesus and not uh, in Buddha? Why should I believe in Jesus and not Confucius? They were all claiming they had some sort of divine authority. Why should I just listen to him? Why not Muhammad uh, or any other prophet? There have been so many wise men and spiritual people who've walked the earth. Why should I believe in Jesus? What makes him so special? Jesus' claims about himself are what make him special. Because none of those people claimed that they would die and be risen again from the dead, for example. What you want to do here is go through, you can start with John 11, 23 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life, and say, what other spiritual leader has claimed this? You have some other extreme claims here. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I've never sinned. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, God, except through me. Right there, Jesus is excluding all other religions that ever have been and ever will be. He's excluding all of them. He's not saying, I have a general truth that I want to explain to you. He's making outrageous claims about what he's going to go through and who he is and what that implies. Basically prompting the audience to take a stand about him. You can't read his claims and say he was a nice person. A lot of skeptics, a lot of people my age say, 
I really respect Jesus because he was a good moral teacher, and I believe also that we ought to share with the poor, and I also believe we ought to, you know, love each other, and, you know, these are all really good things. And yes, I agree with that person. Jesus was absolutely a good moral teacher, and those things are really important. But it doesn't stop there with him. You need to pick a side with these claims. So he was either mistaken meaning that he was mentally unstable. He believed these, th- either he believed these things about himself, yet he was mistaken. Basically, he was, you know, a lunatic or mentally unstable, a little bit insane. Or it's possible that he just lied to everybody. For what? What did he get for all the lies that he, that he told? Did he get a lot of followers? No. Not while he lived. Um, did he get, like, rich? Why do you lie? You lie so you won't get in trouble, right, kids? Don't do that anymore. (laughs) You've done it. I've done it. We lie because we want to get out of something uncomfortable. We lie because we want power and influence. We lie because we want to get to an end that's desirable. Now, why would Jesus lie if all he got was all these terrible consequences? Then Then it's more likely that he was insane. However, what we see from Jesus when we read about his interactions with people is, you know, his, his, his enemies, the Pharisees, multiple times they tried to come to Jesus and um, put him in a, in a, a sort of trap him rhetorically. You know, set up a situation where he has to choose this or this, but both are the wrong answer sort of thing basically setting up Jesus to stumble, a mentally unstable person isn't capable of being able to discern these sorts of things. This is the argument, at least that I have, for why we can believe that Jesus was not a lunatic. If you read Matthew 22, 15 to 46, and Matthew 26, uh, 36 to 46, we see examples, not only of Jesus' rhetoric and ability to think critically and be able to outsmart his opponents, but also his his performance under pressure. When under pressure, a mentally unstable person typically isn't able to tackle that and deal with it. Okay, you have this here. And there's, this is all on the internet too. You could easily find this study in more detail. Um, just Google "higher lunatic legend lord" and you'll you'll find it. I mean, this is just a basic summary of the of the the study. But I find it to be a useful one because it takes away, it strips away the whole concept that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Do we really have to believe, like, can't we just say, I want to, I want to follow his morality? It's like, no, you can't just say that. You need to choose. Is he crazy? Did he lie? Or, or was he made up? That's another one. Was he made up? Was he made up? That's something more and more people are understanding is impossible. It's impossible that Jesus made up almost impossible. I mean, we don't have, all we lack really is video evidence, which we're never going to have anyway. <laughs> But so but many, many historians, not just religious, tons of, not, not even just the, the, the Gospels, but people who lived and were disciples of the, the Apostles and the, the Gospel writers, they also wrote about Jesus. But we have historians, non-Christian historians, writing about Jesus. You'll be able to see that in the back. You know, this is, once again, all stuff you could find on the Internet. You know, Jesus was a fictional character, not a historical figure. Well, that's, that's almost outrageous now. I, I, don't, I don't really know anybody who tries to say that anymore. But if someone does, you have an answer for them. 
So this, this study is basically to give the skeptic a perspective, understanding that this is something I need to have an active opinion about. I need to land somewhere about this. I can't just say, well, this isn't that important. Yes, it is important. If a man claimed today, I'm the son of God and I'm going to resurrect when I die, and when I do, that's going to be the proof to you. Now imagine if that happened. You'd have to believe in that person. You'd have to believe that he was definitely the son of God. You ever seen a person die and come back to life three days later? Yes, I've heard of resuscitation. That can occur maybe if someone drowns for a second and bring him back to life. But if you've been crucified and stabbed through the heart with a, with a lance and then you come back, that's three days later and then you're alive again, that's proof enough for me. We need to find out. Or we need to make, take us, the, the skeptic needs to be able to say, I need to find out whether or not Jesus is the Christ. That's, that's the thing about this study. Remaining possible explanation, Jesus actually was the Son of God. And we can elaborate on all of these. Here's the third nature of Jesus' miracles. This is to, give, this is to separate Jesus from, I'm only going to introduce this one and then we're going to be finished for the night. This is to sort of separate Jesus from people today who claim they have healing ability. Lots of people today claim they have healing ability. I, I, I met a guy on the street in Norway who, who said he was a Christian, and he said he could heal people. And uh, I said, what was your last healing? He's like, well, my friend had a fever. <laughs> and I went to his house, and I, I prayed for him, and three days later, he didn't have a fever anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh... I didn't really know what to say to that. I didn't want to laugh at him because that's kind of mean. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, goodness. You're not a healer. I'm sorry. That's not what that is. The, the miracles of Jesus, I'll just introduce this, and then obviously you can read all this yourself. Jesus' miracles were always successful. They happened almost always immediately, except for the fig tree one where, you know, I said I'd never bear fruit again, and it didn't, showed up later. But all of his other miracles, for the most part, they happened immediately. Completely miraculous events with no scientific explanation. And most importantly, it was claimed they were done before large crowds of people. Now, if these were not performed in front of large crowds of people, why were thousands converted immediately after Jesus lived? Why did they convert if they weren't performed? When G Peter said, here's the basis upon which we can believe Jesus did miracles, fulfilled the prophecies, and resurrected. I didn't see any miracles. No, it's claimed that they were, these were performed in front of large crowds. We have the 5,000 who were fed by the loaves of bread and fish and so on. So <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and stop here. I'm thinking that next time we can talk about this study in more detail. And the real main event is this one, Jesus' death and resurrection. And what I want you to do is I want you to read through these uh, you know, you can add your own notes, you can add to these studies, you can add scriptures. This isn't copyrighted. This is just a, a foundation of sorts. You know, you can make these your own. You can, you can add prophecies. You can subtract. I don't know what you would want to do with it. But I encourage you to read through these, and we can have some time of uh, some, some questions, question and answer. I've performed these studies many times with skeptics. Uh, and if you wonder, well, how would I communicate this? Or what are some good questions to ask about this? Or what if they ask this? Or these sorts of things. You know, I'll be able to sort of assist you with that the best that I possibly can. But uh, I believe very strongly that this is something we all need to grow in. This is something we all need to learn. I'm still learning. I'm not done learning. Um, 
you know, you're still learning, you're not done learning. We're all in the same boat together. We're all trying to learn together. And we want to be able to reach out to these people, these skeptics, because there's more of us all the time. I said us because I'm a skeptic too. I just got convinced. So thank you for being a great audience. Uh, I'll see you guys in a month.